I hope that as we sing those songs that you really look at the words, pay attention to them. Because they're, they're as, as important as, as the message. A lot, of, a lot of powerful words in those songs that we sang this morning. If your heart believes it, it's got to do something to you. <laughs> it's got to grab you. It's got to wake you up. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter... Don't turn there right now because we're going to go a couple places before we get there. But we've been studying in Nehemiah chapter 4 through 6. There's nine, nine weapons that Satan wants to use to tear us down to stop the work of the people of rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem. In chapter 4 we saw ridicule, plots of war, and discouragement. At the end of chapter 4 there was fear. All of chapter 5, and we're only, there's 19 verses in chapter 5, and I'm hoping to get through six of them today. But it's talking about selfishness in chapter 5 of Nehemiah. I told Dick earlier this week, I never thought I'd preach a message on tithing out of Nehemiah, just didn't see it there, but we're going to hit that this morning in, in chapter 5. That's why we didn't tell you last preaching on this week. (laughs) I got some smiles. Okay, good. You're awake. I'm glad to see you're awake. Glad you're with us today. It's good to be here. Thank you for, hopefully it wasn't too risky on the roads. I know as I came in earlier this morning, it was just starting to snow. So it didn't look like it had let up at all. Reading from one of my commentaries. When the enemy fails in his attacks from the outside, he then begins to attack from within. One of his favorite weapons is selfishness. And that's why I read those two verses out of Philippians 2. We've been reading those quite a bit lately. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests. It, it, it doesn't say ignore your, your own. Don't, you know, don't worry about feeding yourself or clothing yourself. It, it doesn't say don't pay any attention to yourself. But it does say do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. We need to put others before ourselves. Anyhow, sorry. If Satan can get us thinking only about ourselves and what we want then he will win the victory before we realize that he's even in the fray. Selfishness means putting myself at the center of everything and insisting on getting what I want when I want it. It means exploiting others so that I can... Sorry, so that I can be happy. There we go. Let's see. Exploiting others so that I can be happy and take advantage of them just so that I can have my own way. It is not only wanting my own way, but expecting everybody else to want my way too. Why are selfish people so miserable? I think Thomas Merton said it best. To consider persons and events and situations only in their light of effect upon myself 
Now, that was kind of fancy words there. Did you got, I'll read that again. No, I, I read through it five or six times before I let it start to sink in. To consider persons and events and situations only in their light of their effect upon me is to live on the doorstep of hell. Let that sink in. That's, that's probably one of the best paragraphs on selfishness I've ever read in my life. It's so, so succinctly and well stated. I, I, I particularly, I, I don't like that line, but it's a good line. It's not only wanting my own way, but expecting everybody else to want my way too. You can either turn, I got three three short verses here, so you can either sit and listen and write the references down or turn with me if you're fast. James 3.16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Galatians 5.15. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed of one another. Now, as we as we look at these nine things in these three ver- or these three chapters, understand that that we contrast them that Satan would use them as weapons against us, but God wants to use them in our lives as tools to build us up. Remember the guys building the walls needed tools to help, you know, get the mortar in place and put the stones back on. So what Satan wants to use against us, God wants to use as tools to build us up. So remember, it's starting out kind of, kind of sounding kind of negative, but there's a positive side to it too, okay? Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too, from God. Did you, did you get that? It's exactly what I was just saying about Satan wants to use these things to tear us down. God wants to, as, as weapons to destroy us, God wants to use them as tools to build us up. It says that, that as you, in verse 27, as you work together, in verse 28, is in no way alarmed by your opponent, which is a sign of destruction for them. When we work together with the mind of Christ at the center, Satan goes down. Satan's defeated. But it's salvation for us through God. Father, as we look into your word this morning, open our eyes. Help us to to look on the needs of others. Help us to be grateful and thankful for what we have. 
and to see how we can use it to further the kingdom, to see how we can use it to honor your name, Father. Not, not to gather awards and trophies and plaudits and pats on the backs for ourselves. Thank you for your word, Father. And as just, just ask that your Holy Spirit would apply it to each one of our lives as you see fit and as it needs to be done. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Just makes me, makes me think of a verse. I'll see if I can find it real quick. Wasn't, wasn't part of my original thoughts, but. <laughs> Matthew 5.16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. Oh, okay. Take a look, guys. See what I'm doing? Oh, wait a minute. I didn't finish the verse. It says that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It's not about heaping praise on me. It's about doing good works that others can see them. And in that, they're not going to praise me. They're going to praise God. Because he's the one that gives us the strength. 1 Peter 4.11 He's the one that gives us the strength to accomplish and to do his will and to carry out what he wants us to do in our lives. Now, let's go to Nehemiah 5. Haven't played that game in a while. Anybody played Monopoly lately? Been a long time. Nehemiah chapter 5. Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there was those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore let us get grain that we may eat and live. They were hungry. There were others who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. Also, there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's taxes on our fields and our vineyards, and now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet, behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters are forced into bondage already, and we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others." Nehemiah says in verse 6, Then I was very angry. Remember the last time we saw that that term in, in our study in Nehemiah? I think I do. <laughs> if I can find it here real quick. I thought I had it written down. Um, it's in chapter 4. There we go. Chapter 4, verse 7. Now it came about that when Samballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. They were so angry that they were taking up arms ready to start a war. They were angry because God's work was being done and if God's work was being done, they were going to lose out because they weren't on God's side of the wall. They weren't on God's team. They were pretty selfish. They were in it for themselves. But they were angry. 
Now we're going to see the other side of that anger in chapter 5, verse 6. Nehemiah says, I was very angry. We know that Samballot and Tobiah and his buddies were all angry because they were losing money. It was going down the tubes. They weren't going to control Jerusalem anymore. Why was Nehemiah angry? We find in, in verse 1 that there was a great outcry. Now, now this, this is kind of a ding on Nehemiah. He was so focused on building the walls that he wasn't paying attention to the people's needs. And it's one of the dangers that leaders need to look out for is don't become so focused and just have one thing in your sights that you lose all your peripheral vision, that you lose focus on the people. I got my program and my plan I'm focused on. My, all my eyesight's right there. And, and who do I see in that, that tunnel vision right there? Nobody. All I see is my project. There's not a single person there. And as a leader, that's dangerous. And because Nehemiah missed this, all, all that, that, that they talk about in verses 1 through 5, all of a sudden it came to a head and blew up. Nehemiah blew up when he, when he realized. But it was disappointing and too, too bad that it took a great outcry. I was supposed to tell you my outline for the chapter. Uh, verses 1 through 5 are the great outcry. Verses 6 through 13, you have a great assembly. And then verses 14 to 19, you have a great example in the way Nehemiah lived. But at this point, he, he kind of dropped the ball in his leadership here a little bit. He, he was too focused. I mean, you can, you can be too focused on something, and he was. He was too focused on the project and the wall. It needed attention. It needed that, that push, that oomph behind it. But you can't let everything else just fall to the side. The people who owned land had to sell it for food. There was a famine in the land. At the end of verse 3, you see there was a famine. There was, there was more people coming back. The, the people that were living in Jerusalem had, had planted their gardens. We don't know if there was a drought or not, but there was a famine and that there wasn't enough food for everybody. More people were coming back, so the gardens that had been planted weren't enough. And with a famine in the land, it wasn't just in Jerusalem, it was in the land. So there was a food shortage all around. And, it, and it's really, it's kind of funny, not not funny, I, I don't know the right word to use. It's not even ironic. It's um, Anyhow, verse 1 there, where it says, And the wives, uh, and there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives. That, that's very, very unusual for this society back then. Women were, were quiet and off to the side. They, they kept to themselves. And it was unusual that the women would have, would be part of this big outcry. Well, what, okay, Shelby and Caitlin, what don't you mess with? Don't mess with my kids, okay? Don't mess with my kids. And there's no food for her kids. So Mama Bear, is speaking up outside of the society norms. She says, I don't care what age I'm living in, I'm ticked because I don't have food for my kids and my kids need food. All of our money is gone trying to buy the food. We've sold our land. 
We don't even have land anymore. We've even sold some of our kids into slavery because they need food. We need food. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 23. This is why Nehemiah was angry. Excuse me. This is why Nehemiah was very angry. You shall not, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 19 and 20. You shall not charge interest to your countrymen. Interest on money, food, or anything that may be loaned at interest. You may charge interest to a foreigner, but to your countrymen you shall not charge interest, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land which you are about to enter and possess. Keep keep a finger there, because we're going to come back to that verse. I like that verse. Jews were not supposed to charge interest to other Jews. If they lent money to a foreigner, it was okay to charge interest. But in the first five verses of Nehemiah chapter 5, we got Jews treating other Jews like foreigners. They were not obeying the law. They were taking it upon themselves to get rich at the expense of their countrymen. They were willing to exploit others for their personal gain. You know, businessmen would say, oh, that's just good business. They're breaking the law. They're, They're breaking the Mosaic law. That's not how they were supposed to operate with one another. Just across the page, chapter 24, Deuteronomy, verses 10 through 13. When you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not enter his house to take his pledge. The pledge was normally the cloak. Because that was a very important part of their life, especially if you were on the poor side. Verse 11, you shall remain outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. And if he is a poor man, you shall not sleep with his pledge. When the sun goes down, you shall surely return the pledge to him, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you, and it will be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. It was a matter of respect for one another. It was a matter of love for your fellow countrymen. They had a need, and you were loaning it. But by returning his cloak to him, which might be the only thing he had to keep himself warm at night, you show him respect. And that's the way you dealt. You took care of one another. You didn't care about exploiting your brother for your own benefit. It wasn't about me. It was about us working together, helping each other out. Write this down. This is almost a a direct um, restating of the exact same verses we just read, but Exodus 22, verses 25 to 27. Turn with me to Leviticus 25. It's back a couple books between Genesis and Deuteronomy. 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus 25. I don't sit and read the Torah a whole lot, the law, the first five books, so my my pages don't have a lot of notes and they kind of stick together because I don't spend much time in the law. But Leviticus 25. There we go. I'm not going to read uh, verses 35 to 46. I'm not going to read all of them. I'm just going to pick out a couple highlights. Uh, but in verse 36, um, Do not take usurious interest from him, but revere your God that your countrymen may live with you. Verse 39, If your countrymen of yours become so poor with regard to you that he sells himself to you, you shall not subject him to a slave service. He shall be with you as a hired man. You treat him with respect. You treat him with love. If God treated us like we deserved, (laughs) if he removed his grace and his mercy from us, hmm, I'm glad he's never tried that out. I'm glad he's never gone there. So if he doesn't do it to us and all of our sin, why should we do it to one another? This is why Nehemiah is angry. Now a businessman will tell you his investments, you know, the return on your investment is, and they tell investors, tell young people, start a little bit now because over time the compounded interest is, is time is what will make you rich. He says, here, don't charge him any interest. The world says, bad business, bad business. You're not going to get rich doing it that way. Hope you kept your your thumb in Deuteronomy there. Am I going to get it right here? Come on. Let's back a page here. Okay, never mind. I'm not finding it right now. I've even got it in my notes. Why? Why did God tell them not to charge interest on other Jews? If any of you knows, go ahead and you, you can give me an answer. If if not, that's all right too. Okay. Well, we'll get to that. We'll get to the year of Jubilee in just a minute here. But why shouldn't you charge interest? What's that? You're on the edge there. You're on the border. You're getting warmer. You're getting warmer. God wanted them to know that He would provide for them. He would provide the riches they needed. They didn't need to depend on interest. They didn't need to depend on their investments and whether they were good investments or bad investments and and how much interest they earned. They would be provided for. It's called faith. They would be provided for and taken care of by God. They didn't need that interest. They didn't need to charge one another to get rich or to exploit one another so that I can get rich off of you. 
Because God says, I will take care of you. I want to be the one to provide you to look to me for your provision. I want you to have faith in me and what I will do for you if you will follow my law, if you will be obedient. God says, am I enough for you? Will you have faith in me? That's why they weren't to charge the interest. They were to treat one another with respect and with love and with care. Because it wasn't all about me. It was about us. Helping each other out. I know there's others that do it. I, I, I don't know about the Mennonites, but I know I, the one thing I love about the Amish. So when they do a barn raising, a young couple gets married. They need a barn. Usually the, the couple in their family are supposed to provide the materials. But if anybody has any construction or anything done, you, you know that it's late. materials are usually about one-third of the cost of your project and labors the other two-thirds. So the community gets together and helps them build their barn so that they can enter their marriage and, and a house, that they're entering your marriage without debt. How many of us still have a mortgage? <laughs> How old are we? <laughs> we didn't just get married. We still have a, we still have a mortgage and a debt. So some, some, some groups of people still get it right and they, and they help each other out. They lean on each other. That, that's God's plan. That's the way he wanted it to be. Selfishness and greed, exploiting others for personal gain to get rich. The year of Jubilee was, was to be a, it was every 50th year. And it was to be a time where all debts were forgiven. Slaves were released to go back to their families. Land was returned to the rightful owners. It was to keep the rich from getting richer and the poor from getting poorer. (laughs) You think you'd ever see that happen today? Outside of the Jewish community, that is. All of our debts are forgiven. We're too much about me. God says there in Deuteronomy that I want to be enough for you. You don't need to make money off of each other. I am enough for you. Have faith, depend on me. Warren Wearsby said that God has a special concern for the poor and will not hold those guiltless who take advantage of the poor. So what do we need to do? And back in Nehemiah 5, in those first five verses, you, you got a lot going on there. You got the king's taxes taking people's money and land. You got the Jews taking advantage of each other, running each other into the ground. Not only running them into the ground financially, but that also affects them spiritually and more and, and emotionally.
When Mama Bear speaks up, you know there's trouble in River City. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. Next week, we're going we're gonna to find out how Nehemiah handled and processed. Process. There's going to be a great assembly. And, and some of these principles, um, I'm just going to lay on the table here real quick. We'll see throughout the whole chapter. So you're, you're going to hear them the next three weeks. So if you want to skip the next two weeks because you're, you know, just kidding. We want you to be here to hear the word. We as believers need to balance all biblical teaching on money. Indulging ourselves at the expense of others does not please God. And shouldn't that be the greatest concern of our lives? Is to please God in everything that we do, say, or think? Indulging ourselves at the expense of others does not please God. Steward what we have for the glory of God, for the good of others, and for the advancement of the kingdom. Not real in the catechisms, but there's a, I believe it's the New England primer that I love for the, what is the chief end of man? And I know I'm not going to get it all right. The first part of it is to glorify God, basically. That's the purpose of our life. That's why we're here, is to glorify God, is to worship Him is to give him the praise that he is deserving of. Would you feel feel guilty if you were rich? Maybe some of you are, and I just don't know it. But if if you had millions in the bank, would you feel guilty that you had that much? Or or maybe you've got 200 bucks in the bank, and you feel guilty because you've got surplus. And, I, and, and I, I can't imagine this. I guess this, this idea is a foreign concept to me, but one of, the, one of the commentators this week said that some people even have a hard time putting new tires on their car because they feel it's a luxury or something like that. But he says, one of them said, but wait a minute. If your wife's driving that car with your kids in it, you better put new tires on that car because what if the tire, the tire blows because you didn't take care of it and the tire blows and a bad accident happens? Then what? Then you've got all other sorts of problems. So there, to, there is something to be said for maintenance, okay? But if you were a millionaire, would you feel guilty? Well, what about the rich young ruler? He said, Lord, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus said, you got to do this, this, this. And he, oh, yeah, good, I'm good to go. Jesus said, oh, yeah, one more thing. He said, sell everything you got and give it to the poor. Oh, well... Time out, God. Time out. Wait a minute. I'm a rich dude. I can't do that. Is the moral of that story or the lesson to be learned from that story is that it's bad to have money? No. The point to that story is that it's bad and wrong to love money more than you love God. God was just seeing and testing the rich young ruler's heart. Where's your heart? His heart was obviously in his pocketbook. Not in going forward with Christ. Well, what about Nicodemus? He'd swindled people out of a lot of money. When Jesus came and, and 
chatted with Nicodemus. Nicodemus says, Lord, he said, I'm going to give half of everything I got to the poor. And if there's anybody that I've stolen from or, or cheated out of or swindled, he says, I'm going to repay them four times the amount of money that I stole from them. Now, was doing that in his Nicodemus' dealing with the money, was that going to get him salvation? No. But it does show that his heart was more concerned about what Christ thought of him than he was concerned about his money. Or the rich young ruler said, mm, mm-mm, I love my money more than you, God. Nicodemus says, Christ, I love you more than I love my money. I need to make it right. I need to stop taking advantage of my fellow Jews. A bad way to use wealth is to disregard others to get more of it for myself. I had, a, I had an uncle who ran a hardware store through the Depression. And he passed away and then my end did, but he was a he was a millionaire, not big. He just he only had two million bucks in the bank, but he was one that would give generously to missions. He would give generously to his church. He would give grant genuously. Can we turn this off for a minute? Of my family listens to this song. <laughs> I was a bad investment. They weren't. <laughs> but he never flaunted it. He didn't live for that money. As far as I know, I mean, I was the youngest of eight kids. But as far to my knowledge, the way he lived, he, they, they, were not, they never flaunted their money and threw it around. After Uncle Ernie was gone, Aunt Mildred still wouldn't go to McDonald's unless she had a coupon. And if it was free coffee day, get out of her way. <laughs> but money was not the love of their hearts. God was the love of their hearts. bad way to use wealth is to disregard others to get more of it for myself. The good way to use wealth is to steward one's wealth to be generous and to advance God's kingdom. Again, indulging ourselves at the expense of others does not please God. God is pleased when we handle his money wisely, when we practice proper money management. How much should we tithe? How much do you tithe? No, don't answer me. I think, I think I'll read a story next week. I, I forgot to bring the book with me this morning. If you make a commitment to God, you better keep it. If you and God agree that you need to give 2% of your income to His kingdom, you better give Him 2%. If you and God agree that you should give 13 or 14%, 
You say, God, I'm going to commit to this. I'm going to give 13 or 14% of my income to the church so that they can give it to missionaries to spread your word around, so that they can use it for Good News Club, that they can use it to reach out into the community to share the gospel of Christ. If you make that commitment, you better stick to that commitment. The New Testament doesn't specifically say, but he does say that we need to be cheerful givers. So then don't, don't be grudging in your money. Be generous. There's nothing that says you have to give 10%. That's the Old Testament tithe. Most, most pastors will stand up here and tell you that should be the beginning point. I think Christians in America, they say in surveys, they do average, the average Christian in America gives like two and a half percent. Can you imagine if we'd give 10% and follow the Old Testament standard? Do you imagine, do you know how much more we could do for the kingdom? There's nothing wrong with the way you people give here in this church specifically, but as a church in America, do you know what we could do for the kingdom? They know it's not just money because you can throw money at problems and if you don't have good management and good programs, it's just worthless and wasted anyhow. I get that. I understand that. So it isn't just about the dollars amounts. But if you make a commitment to God, whatever it is, you better stick with it or there's consequences. There will be consequences if you make a vow to God and you don't hold up your end of the bargain. When you, when you, when you determine that, and, 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 and for believers that are, that are even older and, and may have, you know, financial situations change and over time you have to reevaluate. But when you do that evaluation and, and, and us really young kids, when, when we do that evaluation, do I think beyond myself when I'm spending my money? Do I think beyond myself when I decide how to spend my money, how to save it. Do you think beyond yourself? Okay, let's just say we all, everybody in here, let's just say for the illustration's sake, that everybody in here gives exactly 10% to the church. Do you think God cares how you spend the other 90%? You want to know why He cares? Because it's His. It's all His. The money we put in the offering plate is what we have agreed to with God to give to the church so that they can carry on the ministry and the programs of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But guess what? 100% of the money you make is God's. He provides it. Remember back when the the Jews, when, when Nehemiah got very angry because they weren't obeying the law? And we look back in Deuteronomy, and it says, God says, don't charge interest. Don't get rich off of each other because I want you to depend on me. I want you to have faith in me. I want you to rely on me. 
I will take care of you. I will provide for you. You don't need that interest. You don't need to get rich. Because I'm going to take care of you. He says, I want you to understand, it's all mine. Because the jobs that we have today, he can take away in an instant like that. We, we know that he takes rulers and authorities and powers and puts them up and he takes them down. He'll put someone else up. You may not agree or like the way our election went, but one, it didn't take God by surprise. He knew what was going to happen. And the person that's there is the one he wants there for this time. Huh? Really? Yeah. Absolutely. Maybe we deserve it. Last week was Sanctity of Life Sunday. And we know that in this country alone, and there's a, a, a thing back there, this country alone since 1973 with Roe versus Wade, we've killed 62 million babies. There's a thing on the bulletin board back there that talks, says in 2020 worldwide, Worldwide, over 42 million babies were aborted last year alone. Unfortunately, a lot of them were probably paid with our tax dollars with the money that our government gives to other countries. That is not pleasing to God. But he sets up and he takes down. And Nehemiah prayed that, that the king would, that, that King Artaxerxes would, would bless him on his trip and, and he did. But he, only because God changed his heart. Proverbs 21.1 It's like a channel in a river. God is the one that changes king's hearts. We can pray, we can preach, we can teach the Word of God, but I can't do anything to change anybody's heart. God is the only one that can change people's hearts. We talked last week too that that from, from Psalms, that every single conception is a blessing from God. Whether the person is, the woman is saved or not saved. Whatever the circumstances are, a woman will not get pregnant unless God wants it to happen. He is in charge of every womb. And if he, if he fertilizes that seed through, through the natural process, I don't want to say God's doing anything weird, okay? If, if the normal process goes on and it's done right, if that, if the, the, the two pieces come together and, and form a baby, it's because God allowed it, because God wanted it to happen. Children are a blessing, a heritage from the Lord. So if He is that concerned about His world that He created, He can certainly take my job from me today. God is pleased when we handle His money wisely. His money wisely. Do you think beyond yourself when spending and accumulating money? Nehemiah was very angry when he heard their outcry in these words because he knew that they were disobeying the law of God. 
just just because they were going to stop and start to do it the right way didn't mean that all the problems were going to go away. There was still a famine in the land. They still needed food. But his goal, and we'll see next week, was that it was to stop the disobedience that was going on. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises in it. We thank you for the principles and the guidance that you give us. Help us to live according to your word, Father. Change our hearts, only you can. That we might to want, want to live in an unselfish manner. That we might put others' needs before our own. That we might take care of one another. Father, we wouldn't need welfare in our country. There would be no need for it, no need for the government if we would just take care of one another the way you exhort us to. Thank you for the principles in your word. Thank you for the unity that we can have when we come together around the mind of Christ. Father, we, we give this to you. Just keep people safe as they travel home today. For Dean and Lois as they travel down state, watch over and keep them safe. And, um, yeah, we'll leave, we'll leave them in your hands, Father. Thank you for this day. Help us to love you, to worship you, and live according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Don't leave before I get you a copy of the...